Welcome to Risk Roundup. It seems that across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA, once formidable competitors that had built their success on apparently impenetrable strategic positions are now coming under serious attack from relatively unknown entities and innovators that are employing revolutionary new strategies and innovation. As a result today, regardless of whether you are an individual or an entity hoping to start a new venture or looking to disrupt an established industry or are looking to anticipate disruption and are trying to understand disruptive innovations, understanding disruptive strategy is becoming vital for everyone across NGIOA. It is important that we all understand why is disruption happening? How are the changing fundamentals of cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short referred to as CGS, shifting today's technology, management, governance, financial models, and systems? How can individual and entities across NGIOA prepare for the coming tomorrow? To discuss disruptive strategy and innovation further, I am delighted to welcome Steve Pearson to Risk Roundup. Steve is the founder and head of strategy and innovation at Pearson Strategy Group. Welcome, Steve. We are honored to have you in Risk Roundup. Hi, Jay Sharif. Thank you for inviting me to be on your show. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful, Steve. So today, irrespective of industries, innovators and startups with almost no experience and no capital, no serious backing are able to collapse establish corporation strategy before they can even begin to grasp what's happening. How can any incumbent as or established corporation or any entity across NGIOA compete with today's startups disruptive strategy and innovation? Well, well you know, uh, to kind of proceed the answer to that, uh, the, the question I have for you is that I have observed numerous companies that are very small and startup all the way up through mid-sized companies where we typically play and they all behave similarly and that risk is, is both boring and less exciting than dealing with the innovation, the newness of their idea. And so they're, they're easily diverted from looking into the risk. And so I don't know if that's something you've observed or not, but that's something we see quite frequently. And so uh, one of the things that we look at when we address the commonality of risk assessment and identification is looking out at what competition is doing, such as your market competition. If you're a restaurant, certainly you'd want to know about other restaurants in your area and other ones that you could glean from that may pose a risk to you. Uh, at the same time, there's innovation wrapped up into that, and certainly we can discuss that whenever you're ready. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you make a very interesting point that, that what are the risks that entities of all different sizes, irrespective of whether they are the startups or you know mid-sized companies or large corporations, what are they missing out and what I, what are the risks that they are not you know acknowledging or probably they are not being aware of that is putting them into such a difficult position and they are being disrupted and the answer to that is of course one is the strategic uh, strategic risk another is uh, the competitive intelligence where to look you know what kind of intelligence they need to be aware about we are living in a time where the disruptors or in competitors are not just coming from within uh, any industry. If you are working for energy industry or you know telecom industry or a financial industry or healthcare, the competitors are not just coming from within your industry. They are coming from outside your industry where you have even no idea and there are no geographical boundaries now. So innovation that could be happening in some part in Europe or some part in Asia, 
that would very well you know disrupt and uh, uh, get uh, you know compete with the comp competition or the entities that are over here in united states so anybody can get disrupted innovations are happening everywhere in the world and uh, the strategic risk which the biggest concern is that the culture and mentality of the corporations have changed significantly they are more focused on the tactical risk what is impacting now and how they can provide the shareholder with bigger return and how can they satisfy them so all the executives they are so focused on today's risk what is going to impact them today they are not concerned about what is happening tomorrow or what is going to happening happen in the coming tomorrow and that is where we see a lot of challenges and that's why you know understanding strategic intelligence understanding competitive intelligence is so very important uh, and of course the, what we are addressing today is disruptive strategy that is also so very important to understand while in this episode we are going to focus only on disruptive strategy the coming episodes we are going to address the competitive intelligence strategic intelligence because these are all very very important topics that everyone needs to understand and our mentality from just focusing on today needs to change to you know how to also focus on tomorrow while we have to focus on today how to also address the coming tomorrow so i hope that answers your question and uh, that uh, we all the uh, your observations probably you know also it comes to this uh, analysis that this is where we are facing the biggest challenges we as in the corporations the established corporations and uh, the corporations that think that they are very mature entities and that there will not be any disruption that's where you know we are facing such challenges so uh, while over the another big factor is that while over the years geospace was an economy based only on products and services because of the cyberspace and the changing fundamentals in the cyberspace now we have an evolution from a product service based economy that is rapidly transforming to outcome based economy so from your observation who do you think is controlling the shift revolution and the fundamental transformation well I, i think there's a number of factors at play and i don't know that there's a single party that we could say is behind all this but certainly two of the long-term trends that we've observed is is that data is becoming valuable of course many people realize that but they don't necessarily realize that in the context of manufacturing as we call it a widget uh if they come up with a great new hardware device or product for a consumer they're often think on selling that as making their money their profit their factory work and work over a long time and that may be true and it's certainly valuable to starting up a company but they don't consider the aspect that the digital data that they're going to generate such as simply subscribers to their newsletters is valuable and the other long term trend that we've seen and this has happened over the space of 40 to 50 years is intellectual property again it's a data but it's an intellectual a a virtual asset is is again a kind of a nebulous concept for most product developers and companies because they're thinking that's where they're going to make their money and so both of those combining uh together you've got a legal aspect and a data aspect that are driving a potential huge amount of profit of course companies that are somewhat purely digital such as google uh you know they make uh, almost all of their money if not all of their money off virtual services but if you look behind the company one of the ways that they control that market is through the legal aspect of patents trademarks and other things that protect this digital holistic entity that they have developed 
and they're controlling their market space very well. So those things together are providing a lot of long-term value and I don't see those ceasing anytime in the near future. So I don't know that there's a specific entity that we could blame or assign responsibility for that. Certainly the rules and regulations from our government, uh, US government are helping drive that. But I think it's a uh, part of it is a technological capability that has not existed in the past, such as the internet, social media, those factors are helping drive this. And I, I think it's surprising a lot of people. One of the things that I bring out is that the value of intellectual property, if you look at a study done by Ocean Tomo uh, over a number of years now, they looked at this uh, back about 40 to 50 years ago, the value of intellectual property for the standard and poor's 500, five, 500 very large companies, that value was only in the order of 15, 14 or 15%. Now, if you look at it today, that number is now 87%. And so that's one of the reasons that when we walk in and help companies innovate, strategize, assess their risk, is that we consider that as part of their risk element because if they're infringing on a trademark, a patent, now what seemed like a great innovation opportunity, perhaps a disruptive opportunity, has now become a risk if they proceed into someone else's intellectual property. And so certainly we want to provide a balance and awareness, uh, some research behind who might control those elements to take a true opportunity and maintain it as much as an opportunity as, as we can going forward. Of course, of course. Now, so from your assessment and based on the interactions that you have with the corporations, mid-size or large corporations in the United States or, you know, across our nation's boundaries, you know, in some other nations also, how would you describe the state of disruption that you uh, that you are seeing? Well, the disruption certainly is becoming more international. Uh, one of the things that we've noticed is, is that uh, when we look at intellectual property, which is an area we research a lot, uh, to look at it from a technological, a market, and of course a legal aspect, just to name a few, you have to look at how these patents are coming about. And if you look at the origins of the patents, uh, one of the long-term trends that we've seen is China is filing a preponderance of uh, intellectual property in the patent area recently. And their system, it can't be analogized apples to apples. It's kind of an apples and oranges comparison. But if you look at the long-term trend, that just that one country has come up significantly in the ranks as far as international filings. So one of the things we do to mitigate the opportunities, uh, the risk brought about by an opportunity that is, is to research worldwide intellectual property amongst all the other things that we would do to help provide innovation and risk guidance down the road. And certainly China isn't the only factor, but looking internationally is really important. Uh, again, picking finally on the aspect of international patent filings, if you look at the United States, the United States is publishing about 25% of the patents and patent applications in the world. That means for us inside the United States, 75% of our risk of not getting intellectual property or perhaps having a lawsuit as we move our products overseas or sell them, whatever that is, is held outside of the borders of the United States. And so that's very important. 75%, I think, is a very large number that most people really wouldn't be able to get their arms around without hearing it.
Yes, yes, very true. No, intellectual property, the point that you just mentioned is uh, very, very important. And we every organization, every innovator, every startup, they need to be very aware of that. And especially the mid and large corporations also. But uh, from uh, it seems that while there is a lot of, you know, intellectual property patent, you know, that are being filed, are all those patents driving towards a disruptive uh, model? for business that could uh, probably uh, disrupt an entire industry or you know whether a significant portion of the industry that is not necessarily true so while there are a lot of patents being filed i acknowledge that i agree that most of them are just you know minor modifications of the way to do things differently or the way to you know improve the quality uh, slightly or the way to change the business process you know uh, in uh, small manner but if you look at the overall disruption of all these patents files you won't see that you know in most of the patents so from your assessment do you see the disruptors intellectual property or the patent you know that you are seeing that are you know disruptive do you actually see them you know building business models that are very different from the in incumbents you know based on the patents that they are filing well, well, there's no single answer. So certainly patents, uh, many of them are incremental improvements and many of the improvements that people think of outside of the patenting space are incremental improvements. And next, uh, picking on restaurants, they may introduce a new food or a new uh, decor in the restaurant. And those are all minor improvements that I would consider incremental. But when it comes to disruptive changes, it's interesting to me because uh, in some social media discussions I've uh, held with other people, many people disagree on what really disruptive is. And so there's a lot of discussion uh, about that. But uh, the, in my own context in the world, I think there has to be market disruption, a displacement of an existing market uh, participant, a large one or many of them. And so one of the things that I think that that makes important is, is that, you know, disruption is viewed differently by different people. But to me, uh, this market participation is important. And so to relate that back to your question, John Sheree, is that patents uh, are often filed and they're incremental, but amongst all the chafe, if you will, of all these patents being filed, uh, a cloud, if you will, uh, there are some nuggets of real importance in there that are disruptive. Whether they're ready for the marketplace is a completely separate question. So there's a balancing act with any source of data, including patents to say, is that really ready or not? And an example of that would be uh, space travel, time travel type things. At some point, they're not allowed to be patented, but if you go through and look at the patents, you'll see things that you'll say, those are not ready to go anywhere. That's not going to happen. And so they're well ahead of the marketplace, well ahead of the, the value of patenting today. But nonetheless, somebody decided to drive a stake in the ground. Whether it's a small entrant or a large market participant, uh, it just all depends. Yes, yes. No, I, I hear your point on that. And it is rare that a technology or product or any innovation is inherently sustaining or disruptive. Now, any, when any new technology is developed, how do decision makers make a strategic choice between taking a sustaining path or taking a disruptive one based on your interaction with the decision makers here in the United States? Well, I realize we don't play with the largest market participants, the worldwide conglomerates. Typically, they don't use our services and I don't interact with them as much. They typically have a service where they will internally, they will service themselves by 
dealing with risk and opportunity and balancing that out through typically a stage gate type process. And so they deal with risk and opportunity identification vetting in a different way than the smaller participants that I'm going to describe now do. Typically, many of those companies are dealing in a firefighting mode. They are trying to get their product out the door, resolve a problem, get that manufacturing quantity high enough, a quality problem, all sorts of different things are going on. But typically, they're very tactical. And that's really unfortunate because I think one of the problems with that is, is that the strategy of the company has chosen to focus more on the dollars spent today than the opportunity down the road. And so that's a risk assessment that they've decided it's more opportunistic to deal with today's dollars than long-term opportunity, which I think is a deal killer. But obviously I don't agree with a lot of companies out there in saying that. So it's just interesting to me, uh, the balancing of how we, set up our employees, the flow of decisions, the flow of money to deal with risk, uh, today's risk, and not be thinking about long-term opportunity, long-term risk, uh, all sorts of things. So it's, it's a, a very different world, and I don't typically play in that world. <laughs> That, that is very true and uh, that's that's what I you know mentioned uh, when in the beginning that to look at the strategic risk strategic security risk or uh, to focus on strategic intelligence or competitive intelligence the corp lot of corporations you know they are not interested in doing that and uh, the data suggests that the incumbents that is the disruptives rarely respond effectively to disruptive innovations and because disruption can take time it's not like that because the idea is there today the techno innovation is there today or the technology is there today that uh, tomorrow the market will be completely displaced it's a process that it has to go through and it's a long process so disruption takes time and uh, that is uh, the reason a lot of you know corporations incumbents they frequent they overlook that and they are not uh, focused on that so i mean the best example is uh, looking at the netflix and mm. how it uh, disrupted uh, the whole market and how uh, the blockbuster completely got uh, blinded and they didn't focus on the strategic threat that was coming their way because it, it took them a long time. The Netflix, when it launched, I remember then when we subscribed to that, you know, we would choose a movie and it would take about a few days before it, it would reach us. And that did not disrupt the blockbuster because they were still you know they didn't see that as a threat they thought that you know we we have a strong customer base we don't need to worry about uh, this new company that has launched but when the technology changed and when netflix was able to stream everything in all the movies uh, that you know completely shook the blockbuster and they collapsed because they were not prepared for it they did not think about the strategic risk that was coming their way they did not think keep an eye on the innovations technology that were developing in the cyberspace in the digital world that could you know put them put their business uh, you know completely to you know stop and the customers will move away they did not see that coming so that is a perfect example if you look at it that you know they did not look at it so if the disruption is occurring how should incumbent companies react how should blockbuster have reacted what what what, uh, what are your thoughts on that well I, I think i have two to get started one is is that there is a complacency in large companies that size is somewhat protective uh, think of a fort built on the hill in the medieval uh europe 
size and strength was dealt as a, a, a way to prevent risk from coming in your walls and disrupting your area. And that is true uh, to an extent. But once you figure out that there are ladders and things that break through the wall, obviously that's a problem. And most people in a fort, a large business, if you can take this cheesy analogy, would not think about those things uh, to any serious degree. They would think about their safety. So the other aspect, the part B to my answer is, is that most companies that are making money uh, managing their costs uh, are very focused on those two things. And they're not thinking about their long-term opportunities and they're not thinking about their long-term risk. And to me, the first thing to do to recognize opportunity and to op uh, recognize risk is to be aware, have feelers out such that you have competitive intelligence looking outside the walls of your business or the virtual walls of your business saying, my goodness, there's this thing called Netflix in the world and it's not our model. However, it's pretty interesting and close to our space. We need to study it, monitor it and decide at some point, is this an opportunity or a risk or something that will fade away and go. And so most companies I, that I've been around do not assess those things thinking in the long term. And I, and I say long term uh, in the context of at least 10 years and over. Typically, we start out with 15 years as just a, a, an uncomfortable uh, knife in the ground, if you will, to say, let's be thinking on the long term, 15 years or more, what's going to happen to your business so that we can recognize those things that need to be monitored. And then at some point we can say that's a risk or it's an opportunity or we can choose to ignore it. But typically many companies don't do those things. And so this uh, deciding not to decide to look outside your walls is uh, a little inconvenient because we're firefighting. So I think that's the first stake in the ground is that there has to be an awareness that life extends beyond the walls of your business. And we need to be thinking about risk and opportunity identification. Of course, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I think we live in a time where every corporation, large or small, they need to have uh, someone looking into all these disruptions that are happening all across nations. They need to be looking at the technologies, the ideas, innovations that are emerging from across, uh, you know, cyberspace, geospace, space boundaries, because this is no longer just the, you know, uh, that we are confined to just the geospace competition. We are being, you know, facing competition from not only geospace, but cyberspace and space. The computer code and connected computers has connected everything. So we have to be looking holistically at all these integrated, you know, cyberspace, geospace, space technologies that are coming our way. What are the risks emerging from that and how we can protect ourselves? So the self-disruption needs to be there. Every corporation needs to focus on self-disruption. And if the perfect example is if you remember Apple, they are the they have given us the perfect model for self-disruption. If you remember, long time back, we all were using iPods. And iPods, after, because iPods was very successful, but the Apple did not stop there. They created smartphone. And when they created smartphone, the iPod market, you know, the sales started going down. And the smartphone sales started, you know, going up. But they did not say that, okay, our one of our product is going to be completely, you know, outdated because of, you know, the smartphones that we are creating. They did the disruption themselves. So I think the self-disruptive strategies for the established incumbents is so very essential. And if they don't have the in-house resources, 
they need to get you know help from the outside you know uh, and get some advisory advisors or you know consultants or uh, established corporation uh, companies that are focused only on that to give them that kind of guidance and help and suggestion that they need to be doing some disruptive strategies themselves if they want to survive and if they want to have sustainability for uh, their business in the coming you know years uh, five years 10 years 15 years so what do you think is the biggest obstacle to executing self-disruptive strategies for these established incumbents? Why are we not focusing on that? Well, I, I think Clayton Christian really hit the nail on the head. Uh, he wrote The Innovator's Dilemma and a number of other books, of course, dealing with disruption, what it is and how to implement it. And, and I think he hit the nail on the head because he described that as companies grow, they mature into a model where they become optimized and becoming optimized looks at how to manufacture more effectively, uh, increasing the number of widgets you're able to make out of whatever you started with, cost efficiency, people efficiency, and all these other things. So they become optimized solutions typically. Apple is an exception to that. And so in that optimization, they become so focused on producing their widget, whatever that is, that they really lose sight of thinking forward and thinking at what point will a technology a new marketplace or a patent or other things be introduced in their sphere that could be innovation opportunities or risk uh, disruptors to their business. And so I, I think the mindset has to be shaken up and, and the managers of companies have to be thinking about how do we maintain an awareness of what's going on around us. And once they establish that question in their minds and their teams and their boards, they will say, wow, we need to be thinking in a different way. We're becoming so optimized that we are losing our touch with the outside world. And just like a politician, they certainly need to mingle with their uh, people that voted them in and their other constituents. They uh, will be voted out of office if they lose touch with their particular consistency. Uh, and uh, so that that's really important for businesses, I think. Yes, very true. Not only businesses, if you look at governments, if you look at, you know, NGOs or academia, they all are facing the same threat. It is not just the industries that are facing the threat because the technology that is emerging from cyberspace is giving a new, giving us an ability to do things in an entirely different way. So the government, how we do, you know, voting, that is likely going to change in the coming years. How, you know, the land uh, our ownership that land titles and house titles and even the academic credentials from colleges like you know the transcripts and everything you know it's going to be digitalized the way we teach students academia is going to you know the model is changing so the government how we govern is going to change how the ngos are operating it is going to change it is not just the businesses i mean right now if you look at the businesses also within industries uh, some only some industries you see that the change is happening very rapidly like in financial technology or healthcare technology some of the industries are you know being disrupted much more aggressively than other industries we haven't seen much disruption coming from energy industry or you know other industries but we will be seeing that in the coming years every industry is being targeted by innovators by you know, young people who want to do things in a different way, more economical, more efficient, more customer friendly, more outcome focused. So there is a lot of you know, there are a lot of changes happening. So how if 
when you are advising your clients, how do you advise them that how to bring new technology to this old school, you know, of old way of doing things? How would you tell them to, you know, change their ways to develop new models, new way of doing things and disrupt? Well, that's a loaded answer in that. Um, let me try this. Let me say that one of the things that we see is that when people come up with a new idea, they're very excited. And this plays true for a large company, uh, large in the, a mid-sized context to us. And, uh, and in a small innovator entrepreneur that has a great idea, both of them will generally think there's a lot of opportunity and they'll run as fast as they can that direction without really doing much due diligence. And so one of the things that we help them assess is that we help them say, wow, there's risk and opportunity mixed up in this pool of information that they know or we provide, whatever it is. And so one of the first things to do is to recognize what are those directions of risk that you could incur, such as the government. You mentioned the government earlier and the tax structure could change. If you're an alternative energy and you're getting a tax subsidy, removal of that subsidy is a risk that is maybe real or not real. It may happen down in the road in the future and there's a dollar amount associated with it. So evaluating the, the timeline, the amount of risk, is it reversible, uh, are all things that have to be considered in these discussions. And so um, uh, one of the things that we've noticed is that companies often identify something that they want to make or produce uh, uh, virtually or non. And so one of the things that we try to do is help them identify not only the opportunities, but these tangents of risk that are, they're being exposed to, because typically those elements do not enter their mind. They're boring. They're much less exciting. People generally don't want to talk about them in a group setting. They want to talk about their great idea without introducing risk into that equation. And so identifying and prioritizing uh, how much risk is being occurred for those innovations is really important. But again, the first question has to be, what elements of risk am I introducing by coming up with a new innovation? For example, one of the virtual things that we deal with all the time, uh, literally a project just yesterday, is uh, we had a client that's dealing with a software innovation in the marketing sense. And so in this marketing software idea they have, it turned out that Amazon has a number of patents in that area. And because uh, Amazon has a financial fortitude and a legal team that is standing by, we know that there's three elements of risk that coalesce into a large element of risk for this particular company. And so certainly we want to be apprised of that as we move forward and try to jockey into the appropriate market position, intellectual property position, technology, and all these other elements. We want to make all those elements of risk minimized to the appropriate extent and change that into opportunity where we can. Yes, so, of course. Of course, but as you talk to these decision makers, the clients that uh, mid-sized companies or large corporations, what do you see as the most pressing issues that are impacting their businesses that keep them, you know, from focusing on the strategic, you know, security risk or the strategic intelligence or focusing on the competitive strategic intelligence or, you know, tactical uh, uh, intelligence uh, coming their way? I, I think the main one is psychological. They think that they have to stay in this firefighting mode because there's a real, if you will, tangible problem that's being experienced in production, manufacturing, quality, shipping, something that they can say something is not in this optimized system working the way it was designed and the way we've worked with it for decades, perhaps. And so they recognize that as a risk and a problem that has to be resolved. 
And so the, the part of that that helps reinforce that is that the financial engines are all focused on fixing those problems because that revenue that's coming in is they're highly dependent upon it and they're expecting it from day to day, not necessarily year to year or decade to decade. And so the, the, the key aspect there is that the psychology of organizations is to deal with the tactical rather than the long-term opportunity risk uh, assessments that are really needed to keep a company healthy in the long-term. I think disruptive technologies for the laggards that, you know, maybe the Netflix is coming in and disrupting a blockbuster. If you're sitting on your laurels, seeing a stream of money, you don't want to disrupt that stream of money. At the same time, you're paying off your shareholders, optimizing your processes, building more stores, all these things that are in the tactical sense, very correct. But in the long-term sense, they're very uh, open to disruption. So yeah. I think it's all psychology and money driven in the, in the short of it. It is. It is money driven. The you know short sightedness about uh, satisfying the shareholders today, uh, rather than thinking that you know while we are satisfying shareholders today, that in the coming uh, years as the disruption happens in our industry or in our uh, on our businesses, uh, the shareholders are anyway going to be uh, you know not happy because the sales are going to be down because some other businesses have already taken over the disruptive you know technology or innovation. So I I whether you make the shareholders unhappy today or tomorrow or whether you want to survive today or whether you want to be sustainable in business those kind of questions you know each decision maker need to ask today so what do you think you know as you say the psych you know and the mentality is very important the culture uh, within the organization how they look at things how their approach is what their approach is so what should each organization be thinking today from your uh, perspective well, I, I think to set up uh, the company appropriately for investors and expectations, I, I think the main thing is mentality again. If you look at Apple, which you mentioned earlier, the investors of Apple know that Apple produces great products, both in the real sense and in the virtual sense. And the expectation is, is that they will continue to innovate and improve their domain well over the long term. And so in the short of it is, is that if they miss a quarter, people say, it's no big deal. I trust Apple to be thinking about their profits, their products, their users. They're very user focused, of course. And so that's really good. Um, another example that has fewer products is if you look at Elon Musk and his web of companies, there's a high degree of hype around those companies. And, and essentially, I equate that hype with trust. Elon is a very personal person. He is a trustworthy conveyor of information and products saying, you know, we were, we are going to go to the moon. We are going to produce an electric vehicle. We are going to tunnel underneath the city. And he flaunts it just enough to say, we are doing that. And we're going to show up all the big guys. And he's trustworthy and exciting at the same time. He's not making a lot of money right now for all these various companies. There probably will be in the long term but it's mostly hype at this point. And so it's a fascinating case study of like a larger entrenched player of Apple versus a, a newer guy, Elon Musk, who in the sense of the businesses he's running today generally aren't producing much profit and there's a lot of debt. So it, it's an interesting case study to compare the two. And certainly there are other companies worthy of a discussion out there. Yes, of course, of course. I mean, it's interesting that you talked about Elon Musk. And so if you talk about his venture Tesla, do you think it's a disruptive model? 
it probably will be disruptive. Let me do that. I'll be political for a second. And, and the reason I say probably is, is that Elon Musk company, uh, Tesla, if for those who don't know it already, uh, Tesla is very disruptive. However, in the market context, they have forced a lot of the entrenched players, of course, to look at electric vehicles, you know, plug in hybrid electric vehicles and all these different variations. And so they're disrupting the marketplace. However, the long-term story for me hasn't been written in that. Uh, as those entrenched players are adapting to this disruptive technology and people's expectation, consumers' expectations, they haven't shown that they're going to be profitable in the long run. So I'm kind of waiting to make sure that they are actually in the market context successful and profitable before I say, yes, they are a true market disruptor. It's, it's interesting to me uh, because all the larger companies in general, uh, stereotyping them, were very entrenched on internal combustion engines of some sort uh, to make their uh, vehicles work properly. And so there's a lot of sunk cost in manufacturing and knowledge and intellectual property and on and on. And so now having to retool and buy new systems at the same time deal with these sunk costs from a financial perspective is a huge burden to bear. But as a market participant in the largest sense, you know, the General Motors, the Fords, et cetera, they have more resources than others, but it's, they also have a huge amount of debt as they restructure and retool. So I, I, I'm very interested to see in 10 years down the road if Elon Musk uh, Tesla company can be the disruptor and survive this and be the disruptive company that they have provided. I, I think that in the context of a disruptive technology, they have certainly introduced that wrinkle into the system and that will be successful. I, I see no indication that that's going to reverse itself in the near term. What are your thoughts on Uber? Do you consider Uber as disruptive? Yes, um, I, I consider Uber disruptive. Uh, unfortunately, the, the market participants were highly regulated. If you look at Austin, Texas, we regulated our taxi service like most large cities very stringently. And so the taxi drivers are operating according to government regulations, driving company direction and what they can do, such as background checks, fingerprint checks, and all these different things to make sure that the riders are safe. And so here comes Uber and Lyft and other virtual uh, technologies that say we can do that better. Uh, unfortunately, the industry entrenched players uh, such as the cab companies, the bus companies are so heavily regulated that they're having a hard time adjusting because the regulations aren't keeping up with the technology, which is common. They're, they're stagnant that way. So I think it's disruptive to answer your question. Unfortunately, I don't think it's as disruptive as I would have liked to seen uh, because I, I don't think the cab companies and the regulations that are driving them have been given a fair shot to say they really won this little bout of pe person versus person as opposed to one person with their hands tied behind their back. So I, I, it's an interesting technology and it will be disruptive. It, it is interesting, but there are many who says that uh while Uber is an outlier and is a great success uh, in its own ways, it is not disruptive because they have not created new markets. So there are many who say that unless you create new markets that where there were none, you are not disruptive. So there is, you know, a debate going on among uh, many, you know, academicians about whether uh, Uber is actually disruptive while they are very, very successful. And a lot of, you know, people and a lot of, uh, you know, 
leaders call them disruptive that they are not actually disruptive because they have not created a, a new market as you know in the classical way that if you create uh, if you are disrupt, uh, cre having disruptive forces and you are creating new markets then you are a disruptor so i mean these are the debates going on but from yes. your assessment which industries are resisting the disruptive forces i mean we just talked about that the tax industry highly regulated uh, and there was uh, it was very difficult from them to change from within or uh, to make it you know more efficient or more cost effective or more customer friendly from within uh, so they you know the uber kind of competition started taking over where i mean healthcare also we are seeing that uh, is getting disrupted and hope in coming years we will see digital medicine you know emerging so rapidly that a uh, uh, lot of uh, medical doctors medical specialties will be outdated and they wouldn't uh, their business will be taken over by just smartphone or some you know ai based doctors so uh, healthcare is seeing that uh, financial industry is seeing that if you look at you know uh, cryptocurrencies and if you look at blockchains and many different ways of doing things in you know, deep learning machine learning it is taking over a lot of uh, major segments of the financial industry but you see also many industries that are very resistant that you don't see changes happening what do you see in the market and uh, from your interactions with the industries well i, I don't know that it, certainly different companies have different elements of risk such as international risk if you're selling if you're producing military weapons and selling overseas the status quo could be disrupted very quickly as people's opinions in those countries, the politicians that are paying you the money are changed. So if you're a Lockheed Martin and you're selling very expensive aircraft and ships and other defensive technologies, that technology uh, can be, or those sales can be disrupted very quickly by people's perceptions overseas, not laws or anything else. And so uh, certainly companies that are in that space have to be very concerned because as the United States jockeys its political position, there is a huge element of risk of how those companies are perceiving us, uh, the government uh, in the United States. So you have to be very careful with that. It, additionally to that uh, and related to that is that uh, software like Kapersky software, uh, we have now decided that that software could be mining our personal information and monitoring what's going on. I have no idea if it's real. Is it technically possible? Well, from my uh, backseat uh, observation, yes, it's technically possible. I have no idea if it's occurring, but that stream of money is shutting off extremely fast, or maybe it's completely down uh, for many of the United States. So long story short, I think one of the biggest elements of risk, uh, you know, we've talked about being stagnant and depending on this cash cow of money coming in. I think the other element of risk that we have to consider is, is that companies aren't thinking about how fast those streams can change and what will they fall back on. So they make one or two or more products and they're thinking, okay, these are great. We're going to focus all our attention on that. But in the strategy sense, if there is an unknown variable, literally an unknown variable that changes that cash flow, how will you react? It could be internal. It could be political. It could be uh, a market change. Uh, so if you're a cab company, and you're thinking, wow, this is going to be great for the next hundred years. I'm going to have taxi drivers paying me, you know, 3% year on year profit. Well, that's great if it survives. However, you have to be thinking about what could disrupt it. And sometimes we just don't really know what those risks are, but we need to be thinking about 
technology risk, market risk, political risk, and it all varies by the type of company and where they're operating. Of course, of course, now we have to consider all different risk variables. And it seems that in this era of connected computers, social and mobile technology, everyone that is individuals and entities across NGIA are in direct communication with another, one another. And we are collectively, individually and collectively shaping the coming tomorrow. Now, do you see that the consumerization of social media technology and the big data that is being collected, data's influence, is driving decisions about the coming tomorrow? And do you see that the decision makers uh, from across all the industries have started depending or relying on the big data and uh, analytics and uh, the machine intelligence to drive their decisions about the coming tomorrow? Well, certainly, certainly. Uh, if you look at companies monitoring Twitter for references to their company, looking at a statistical level, not necessarily a user level, an individual user level. Companies uh, have developed around that and made an industry to make sure that customer sentiment, uh, the appearance of that company, such as an airline has received a number of recent tweeter, uh, Twitter, excuse me, uh, references that are negative. And certainly the companies want to be aware that they're being cited negatively uh, in a social media context, because as we all know, that can go negative in a very large way, very quickly. And so identification of that problem is primary interest. And the second is to have a game plan that says when that's causing a problem very quickly, we should have a game plan anticipating that we know how to deal with it. Maybe not the specific instance, but we pull in a specific consultant, we say certain things, we don't say certain things. And so we develop a game plan maybe for some specific scenarios, but certainly for a scenario where we don't necessarily know where all the negative sentiment is coming from and how it's being perceived. So having those long-term thoughts and monitoring systems developed, I think is a perfect indicator of how these uh, Twitter monitoring services are working to say, customer sentiments down, what's being said about uh, our company by the individual users. And so as you detect a problem, you can start to drill into it and say, Maybe we can address that on a real level or a virtual level or some other level that maybe we haven't determined yet. Very true, very, very true. Now, across nations, the barriers to entry in the market no longer exist just in geospace, as uh, you know, I mentioned earlier. It's also in cyberspace and also in space. So uh, a lot of space innovations are happening. A lot of space uh, ventures that are coming uh, emerging are going to impact nations' economies significantly. And these unexpected competitors are coming in from uh, not only cyberspace, geospace space, but also from across the sector, industries, and nations. Do you see what is the level of preparedness? Do you see, you know, across industries or nations from based on the interactions that you have, you are having with your customers and clients all across nations? Well, I, I think in general, we, we certainly encourage thinking out of the box and thinking uh, in a competitive intelligence sense. So trying to detect those perturbances that are becoming a uh, reality down the road or maybe becoming reality. And so in general, I think larger companies are much more adept at dealing, uh, identifying and dealing with those problems, whatever they are. But the mid-sized to smaller companies don't even realize that those things should be thought about, uh, especially mature companies as they're thinking about their bottom line, their cash cows, 
they're not thinking about all the things that could happen from if they're a terrestrial company, what could happen from new technologies and new markets in outer space. There's certainly a lot of privatization, a lot of opportunity coming. It hasn't been realized yet. And so people aren't necessarily thinking about their companies changing on a dime and identifying those risks and opportunities that they say, wow, we need to be thinking about a Facebook for outer space or something that relates an existing business model on earth to perhaps an innovation outside of earth in a terrestrial, uh, I'm sorry, in a, a spatial context. And so uh, putting those two things together uh, with two different variables of space and time can be very difficult for smaller companies that are focused on the bottom line today to, to think about and deal with. Yes, yes, we need to know. Does your organization or in your assessment, if you, have you seen any disruption frameworks that are available to evaluate these new opportunities and potential threats uh, that uh, you know organizations are using, you know, whether you are using it for the clients or clients are using on their own. Uh, do you see the availability of any disruption frameworks? Well, we, we talk about disruptor frameworks uh, because it's difficult to explain what we do. I, I typically say that when I talk with a person, typically there's a light bulb moment that happens, maybe 15 minutes, maybe an hour down the road as they understand that what they are doing in their company is different from what large worldwide conglomerates are doing. And that light bulb moment is often triggered by the fact that these large companies have competitive intelligence. They have roundtables where they're assessing innovation, risk, opportunity, strategy, all these types of things all together. And so when I'm having this light bulb moment with a person, one of the things that helps them realize that they're behind the curve is that telling them that these large companies are doing everything that we're doing to help small companies, essentially in an a la carte sense, large companies are doing 24 seven with dedicated groups of people in all different contexts. And so at that point they realize, wow, I'm kind of behind the curve. I'm a small company. I don't have the resources of a really large company. How am I going to deal with that problem? And so that light bulb moment that's saying that, wow, we're already behind the curve and I didn't know that curve existed until just a moment ago is the real critical, philosophical, strategical uh, level that says, I need to do something. Yes, yes, we, we all need to do something about uh, this disrupt disruption that is coming our way. So uh, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about your organization's effort in uh, helping entities across NGIO, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in managing their disruptive strategy or in coming up with disruptive strategy and uh, uh, not being disrupted and uh, man coming up with the disruptive innovations within their own organizations or you know how to acquire you know the uh, disruptive uh, innovations and technology from other organizations startups what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about your efforts towards that Wow, I could go a lot of different directions with that. That's great. I, I would say that, of course, having an open mind and a strategic mindset is important, as we described earlier. But I, I do think that the awareness that the disruptors to a business aren't necessarily well known. Uh, if you're General Motors, the disruptions may not come from a Ford or a Chrysler. They may come in the form of a Tesla company that's founded and started out from scratch using the technology that it's going to use, disruptive technology, by the way, that could displace your current market position as a leader. 
And so the technology, the patents, the legal framework, the politics, all these things are potential disruptors. But most people think uh, both in the short term uh, in the firefighting sense, but they don't think about competitors necessarily coming from outside their market competitors that they're familiar with. If you're a Coke, you're worried about Pepsi. If you're a Snapple, you're concerned about other drink producers. But in the long story of what is competition, the technology to make tea has been around a, lo a long time. However, the market perception and uh, the ways that those have been formulated have been adapted such that they may be infringing on Pepsi or Coke's turf. And so what was seen as a separate marketplace has now melded into theirs and perhaps disrupted it uh, as sugary drinks have experienced a decline in public perception lately. And so those are just examples that market uh, participants are important to keep track of. However, disruption comes in many forms, whether it be technology, uh, technological, political, uh, intellectual property at times, just a number of different places. And so that realization is really important to instill in an organization. Great. So thank you so much, Steve, <clears throat> for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on disruptive strategy. And our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on not only disruptive strategy, but the changing global fundamentals and the emerging disruptive models that we see across nations, is government, industries, organizations, and academia. So even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to understand disruptive strategy and come up with ideas to solve complex challenges facing humanity based on the understanding they received from the discussion we had today, this Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service, and we thank you for that. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you, Steve, again. So it means that in industry after industry, once formidable competitors that had built their success on apparently impregnable, impenetrable strategic positions are coming under attack from relative unknowns that are employing entirely radical new strategies. So as disruptive strategy fundamentally transforms components of NGIOA, it is important that we evaluate security risk rising because of the profound implications to the future of the humanity. Risk groups, cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIOA and CGS. And we at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk counters, to watch the risk counter videos or hear the risk counter podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you, see you next time. Thank you.